0: Hello, welcome to Single-Minded Conversations, I'm your host Jesse Single. For today's episode I spoke with Chris Arnotti, he's a freelance writer and photographer who has a new book out a week from today on June 4th. It's called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America and it's very, very good. It also has an interesting origin story. Chris has a PhD in physics from Johns Hopkins University and worked for 20 years as a trader on Wall Street. After the crash he got disillusioned, and to make a long story that he will soon tell in much richer detail short, he started hanging out in a part of the Bronx he was told was dirty and dangerous and that he should avoid, Hunts Point. He developed friendships, some of them rather intense, with some of the people who live and hang out there, and this sparked an interest in other, similar places elsewhere in the country that people with resources say to avoid. Soon, Chris began traveling all over America, seeking out these places. He interviewed and photographed countless people living in difficult circumstances, his main goal being simply to shine a light on people in places that had been forgotten at a time of widespread industrial decline, worsening inequality, and an opioid crisis that's begun ravaging different parts of the country. All this work culminated in, in the book that's coming out next week, and it's, it's great. I'll leave it at that. Chris goes into a lot more detail in our interview, but you can and should pre-order the book on Amazon. I'll drop a link in the show notes. Chris funneled a huge amount of his own time and money into this project, and I hope his book succeeds beyond his wildest dreams. Both the writing and the many photographs are wonderful and frequently heartbreaking. This is going to sound trite and privileged, and I, I guess I'm a little bit of both, but I really felt like I learned a lot about my own country from reading this book. Before we get to my interview with Chris, please remember to subscribe and rate this podcast and to tell your friends and enemies about it. Uh, if you're a bank robber, tell your hostages about it. Every little bit helps. Please spread the word. If you want to support my work beyond telling your hostages about it, you can become a free or paid subscriber to my newsletter, Single Minded, which you can read at jessysingle.substack.com. I've got an audio Ask Me Anything going up for paid subscribers, probably today, Tuesday, May 28th. Maybe tomorrow. We'll see. Uh, Either way, thank you so much for listening and you'll hear more from me soon. So yeah, I mean, let's just let's start at the beginning with sort of your final days on Wall Street and what first sent you to Hunts Point to, to start the project that would begin this book. How did, that, how did that happen? What made you realize you had to leave?
1: I think the standard answer I give is if you had talked to me prior to the financial crisis, I joined Wall Street in the early 90s out of grad school, which you know, was a very different Wall Street than what Wall Street became. Um, it was more kind of private firms. And by the time the financial crisis came around, I was kind of already getting tired of Wall Street. Um, The changes had made it a little bit less, um, just a little more uh, depersonal. The industry had changed a lot and it was not for the better. And if you had asked me prior to the financial crisis, I would have said to you, what I do is not great, but what I do is also not bad, it's just benign. It's just a way to raise, you know, it's intellectually interesting work and it's it's how you raise a family. After the financial crisis, it was clear that it 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 wasn't benign that kind of what we were doing was pretty 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 fucked up actually there was this period when I you know we kind of blew up the world and I was very close to the epicenter of what what happened you know my firm was very much responsible I was very much involved in the very close to the, the center of the action for the where, where the worst things happened I didn't see any sense of self- introspective on the part of the people the, the actors who were involved in this I thought we all kind of would have said, hey, we, we messed up, you know, like, look, look what happened and take stock of what we did and what we are doing. And actually, I mean, there were people who did that. But by and large, most people put up kind of put their heads in the sand and said, no, we didn't make a mistake. Actually, you know, the, the government regulated us too much. That's why, it was, you know, it just it, it was just this really mind blowing kind of attitude that I really didn't respect and then, so I I kind of stayed on the I stayed in the stayed around for another five years kind of just playing by the rules just kind of getting by just you know doing doing not much um, but you know I'd always been always been kind of from the day I got to New York in the early 90s I'd always taken these extraordinarily long walks just to explore you know my, my first walk was from you know, when I first got to New York, I walked the entire length of Broadway from the cloisters down to, you know, down to the tip of Manhattan. And so those walks kind of evolved and became kind of more central. Um, and I started just going into places kind of where I was generally told not to go. And, you know, the kind of rougher neighborhoods, places that were stigmatized. And eventually I kind of had worn out. I, I knew Manhattan. I knew Queens. I knew Brooklyn. And I didn't know Bronx. So I started taking walks to the end of the subway in the Bronx all the way up to the, the very end of the subways. And then i take the subway to the very end and then walk home. And I remember one, one time so I was mentioning that I was going to do one of these walks and someone said, whatever you do, don't go to Hunts Point. So of course I had to go. <laughs> <laughs> um. And, you know, what I found there, the minute I walked in there, it was just so much, just the entire South Bronx was so different from what people had kind of told me it was going to be. You know, the people that emphasized the drugs and the the sex work and the, the poverty and the crime. And what I found was a neighborhood and a community that was, you know, hard pressed, but people were doing their best to make it doing, you know, just living their lives and doing pretty one. You know, there were there these pigeon keepers who I thought I kind of got involved with who kept pigeons on their roof. And I just found this to be a beautiful outlet that, um, you know, all, very artistic that people kind of. Didn't take seriously, but I found just absolutely beautiful. And in, in addition, there were these, um, there are, no, there weren't, there still are, these bike cl- bike clubs. You know, mostly of older men, mostly Puerto Rican and, and Dominican, who take these old Schwinn bikes, the ones that people got, you know, from Christmas catalogs in the '70s, um, and restore them or pimp them out. <laughs> and it was just this really vibrant, you know, vibrant's an overused word, is kind of, but it was this really wonderful way of. This, this this sense of community here um and as an artist i also appreciated the fact that the light was really good it was just you know it's, 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 it's it, you don't have a lot of the tall buildings in the south Bronx that you have elsewhere so you get these wonderful um kind of industrial um, scenes that were just good for f- photographically um and so i started spending more and more time there and uh, i did this for you know, a year kind of going on the weekends and my free time kind of just talking doing the pigeon keepers and the bike clubs. And then I realized that those things that had stigmatized the neighborhood were there and um, people kind of ignored them. And that wasn't fair either. If I was going to kind of portray these communities, I had to, you know, there was homeless addicts, many of them sex workers. And um, it would be unfair of me to, you know, they were, they were not only being stigmatized. I I saw by the, by the outer community, by the wider elite press, but they were also getting stigmatized within the own own community. People like you know, we kind of not paying attention to them, and I felt it was unfair. Um, and it wasn't, and so I ended up getting drawn into this community, this street family of roughly 50 to 60 um, homeless addicts. I don't, don't know any other way, better way to describe them. It's unfair, but you know that's what they are. Um, they live under bridges and abandoned buildings, and and I spent. You know, roughly at that point, then I kind of quit my job or I was quit. I was quitted um, <laughs> and um, I had this, you know, I had to make this decision if I wanted to continue to try to find a job in finance or if I wanted to just do this. And I kind of just did this, which I didn't know what this was other than just kind of spending my time, you know, six or seven hours a day um, photographing and writing the stories of this this community of homeless addicts mm-hmm. in the South Bronx.
0: You note in the book that, especially early on, you had this impulse to sort of save everyone to sort of drive them to their court appointments and try to keep them from using. But it sounds like you're you're you realize that just sort of wasn't going to happen. How did your relationship to to these folks evolve in that sense?
1: One of the things was that, one of the things I always say is that once you start treating people on their terms, you know i I stop feeling sorry for them because that's such an offensive thing to do. I mean, this was their life, and this is what they did, and it's classic kind of harm reduction when it came to is like I think of it as an act of immigration. If they ever wanted out, if they ever raise their hand and say, "I want out of this lifestyle," and I really want out of this lifestyle, then I'll do what I can to facilitate that. But I'm not going to preach to them and tell them that that what they're doing is wrong. Um, this is who they are. This is what they. This is the life they know, and you know once you kind of get to that point and you try to just treat them, I mean, like I do, you know, treat them like friends, like you would anybody. And, you know, that also means getting annoyed at them at the right reasons. <laughs> you know, like, you know th- that's not just this, this glamorization. And it's cause it's not a glamorous lifestyle at all, but I mean, you know, you take the good with the bad and there's a lot of bad, um, but you just treat them, you know, I guess to use the title of the book with dignity in the sense that, the dignity to like get mad at them for the right reasons, you know, <laughs> like, um, and, and not treat them like these kind of broken people who are deep down wonderful people. Cause some of them are not wonderful people. Either. <laughs> you know, they, they have all the warts that everybody else has once it became, you know, but, but, but there was this period when I kind of like a year, year and a half of just every day I'd wake up to text messages saying, can, you know, can you get me to this court date? Can I, you know, I want to go to detox again. And I would try to do that. And, It really never, never, never ended up helping, I guess. I mean, you know, at a small level, it might have helped, but it never, not in the grand scheme of things. Like, nobody got out. Nobody, you know, everybody, if someone went to detox, I'd find them on, you know, I, I drove them to detox on Tuesday. I'd find them back on the street on Wednesday having run away from detox. So I kind of moved to more of a just, you know, hey, come on, let's just talk each day like friends do. Let's talk about sports or let's talk about, you know. Um, pigeons or whatever. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that's the appropriate way to to deal with anybody, actually, but especially people who are find themselves on the margins.
0: It It's far from sort of the most important point of the book, but I was interested in your process of developing a ethical code as a journalist for how much help you were going to provide people and when you would give them money and, and stuff like that. Was that just sort of like a piecemeal thing figured out as you go? Or what were your sort of values and principles in figuring that out?
1: I, I was fortunate. This was a personal project originally. So I don't, I didn't come up. I didn't come with a label of journalist. So I, I could do what I thought was right without having to, you know, Hey, I, I look, I, am going to get, I get attacked for this, but I have no problem helping people. You know, if, if someone's sub, especially in my early work where I wasn't working under the guise of any, any, um, any, any newspaper, if if somebody, you know, is, is when you when you know somebody and you know them well, and they're they're withdrawing on the streets and they're vomiting. You know, <laughs> it's hard just to walk away and say, "Nope, I can't help you. you know, I can't give you ten dollars. I can't um, you know take you to the dealer," because that's just not. You know, I mean, I think we have a. I think journalism has a problem because it doesn't know how to behave around people. Uh, you know, who 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 have less privilege than them, so it puts up this wall of saying. I can't do the following things, and what the following things means, I can't get involved, which is convenient at one level because it means you never have to really see that person in all the, you know, in their in their full in their full full sense of who they are. It puts up this unnecessary wall. I like to think I worked more in the mode of, of a sociologist sociologist or ethnographer who kind of tries to. Be part of the community by but always recognizing that he's not part of the community because of the big differences you know i mean most of the time what it meant was helping people meant you know driving them to, to bronx criminal court or um meeting or putting money on their um putting money on their account when they end up in rikers um but also meant buying them mcdonald's you know or or when they're really desperate, sliding them 20 bucks or sliding them 10 bucks, you know, uh, um, or just, you know, let them use my phone or let them use my computer. But I, I don't think there are good, there's no hard, fast rules how to deal with this other than just, you know, I think treat them like you would anybody who's a close friend. And, you know, but also understand that you guys, you come from a very different perspective and you have to appreciate that. Do you
0: think that, um, I mean, my pet theory is that, journalism's class problem is getting worse because the traditional route of like being a middle-class kid who goes to work at a local newspaper and claws your way up, that's more or less gone. Do you think that some of the stuff we all miss that you tried to uncover, is that because journalism is sort of privileged kids like me? And is that a big part of the problem here? Do you think?
1: I, I think that's part of the problem, but I think that's, I think the bigger problem is look, I can only do this project because I didn't need to get paid, um, you know. I think there's a lot of journalists who could have done this project better than I could have, but they, they couldn't take three four years of not getting any funding, <laughs> you know. And I don't think any any newspaper is going to fund somebody, you know. Hey, just spend four years immersed in these communities. Um, they'd want you know. Where is my return for my investment? And also, you know, when I was pitching articles on poverty and stories prior to Trump's victory. Nobody wanted them because readers don't want to read them, you know? People, yeah, I think journalists sometimes beat themselves up a little bit too much when they when, when, when the reality is that a lot of the readers don't want to read about these stories, you know? So journalism has to—they have to pay the bills, and so they're, you know, they can do a two-year study on poverty in the Bronx, and it's not going to get that many views. But I, I also—I do think what your point is, journalism being— I think it's less about the route into it as opposed to where you, where you. I think journalists now to become successful have to follow a path that basically uh, that puts them in this kind of these communities that are very kind of either in D.C. or New York, um, and and in certain neighborhoods in both. And I think that that's a problem that it kind of uh, eliminates a lot of voices that need to be heard. And I I, I don't have, I don't think it's I don't think it's a problem with the journalists themselves. I think it's the industry they find themselves. And you can be a really well-intentioned journalist who has the best intentions, and you'll find that you know you get kind of funneled into doing these stories that kind of are like parachute journalism because the the, the industry doesn't reward kind of long-term projects.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it just when I was sort of a staffer at New York Magazine, I, I did have great support, but just the extent to which it's just it's sort of a tough sell to get like any sort of resources for in-depth reporting. Like when I got, you know, a a hotel room in Philly for two nights to chase down a story that felt like a a major victory. And I think more and more journalists are coming up in situations where that's just not a
1: realistic possibility. Nobody would have funded this project, put it that way. The only reason I could do it is because I had money of my own. And I, I feel, you know, like I said, there's a lot of journalists who could have done a better job than me, who had kind of more training. But no one's going to no one's going to let them loose to do it and uh, you know i think the the collapse the, the journalism becoming a big industry kind of a big kind of money centered industry within kind of two money centers is a problem because you know no there are a lot of great journalists who would do great projects but no one's going to give them the, the leash to do it
0: i really like the way you um in your discussion of addiction you sort of talked about addiction as a, a symptom of of desperation and loneliness and and you have this this quote of um you know, people who are addicted hanging out with fucked up people, but they're my fucked up people. Like, just doing certain drugs gives you a ready-made community. Do, do you think just because we sort of moralize drug use so much in this country, people lose sight of of what drives it and what people get out of it?
1: I think there's that. I think people um, – I mean, one of the – I was kind of I'm. – I'm kind of shy to say – you know, one one of the quotes I'll say, which I, I don't want to be taken out of context, is drugs are popular because drugs work, and I think the community aspect of drugs, that drugs, you know, the crack house, the drug trap, the um, you know, the the space under the bridge where people shoot up, is is, is, is kind, of, it's a strong community. It's and that struck me most when I started going into these spaces. It was how how much of a community it is and how how appealing that is especially for people who, who, you know, have been kind of tossed aside. They find other people who've been tossed aside and they can relate to them on their terms. And there's a very strong bonding that goes over drug use, especially heroin, the whole process of injecting, um, um, procuring the drug, fixing it, mixing it, putting the needle in. And, you know, I think any longtime user would tell you that, that there's there's a ritual process that's almost an established ritual that brings people together so i think what I, i've always been scared about kind of talking about the community how, how strong the community there is among drug users because i think you know you can't say anything that people say well stop talking about the positives of drugs i mean <laughs> you know i mean it's like drugs are considered to be so bad that when you when you mention that why people might use them the reasons that the drugs are appealing people push back at that i i feel very much like had i grown up having suffered trauma that, to the degree that a lot of the people i know were growing up in these situations i would have ended up using the drugs because of the strong community there you know it's and and um and so I, it's just i think when we kind of stigmatize people for for doing things that kind of you know i'm a bit of an outsider in the drug community because um, i see it entirely as driven by demand not supply you know you can you can cut down The drugs that come into this country—it's not going to change things, you know. The the current opioid issues, looking at the deal at the people who supply the pills—I think it's less about that and more about the fact that there's just despair out there, and drugs feel that that feel that despair both with kind of a numbing effect, but also with a with a ready-made community.
0: Yeah, the sort of lack of empathy. I mean, the sense of I couldn't—I can't imagine why anyone would use a substance. That's sort of a microcosm for the broader. You know, I couldn't understand how anyone could be in this situation where they don't have a job or where they can't support their kids. It's just, I, I think people consistently underrate the importance of context, and and there's a "there but for the grace of God" um, sentiment that's often missing from these conversations. I think.
1: Yeah, I, I, one of the lessons I, or to the degree that people take lessons from the book, is I want, I wish people, on the left and the right, you know, the right's been stigmatized for this behavior a long time, but I, it's, it's seeping into the left more. Which is this idea of not giving context to people's decisions? You know, you got to look at the decisions people make within the context of which they're made. Which what are the what are the other options? <laughs> you know, we I'm a leftist, I'm committed leftist, and one of the things we've always the left done is when when minority communities are stigmatized for um, the problems they have, poor minority communities, we always say, wait, 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 let's look at context. Look, you know. It's not that people are lazy. It's not that they're welfare queens. It's that there's no available jobs. Um, there's no available educational routes. There's secondary education, secondary jet work, there's you know, racist barriers to getting getting jobs. So we we provide context to those decisions. And I think you need to make that also when it comes to drugs. When people use drugs, you gotta look at the con like why are they using them? You know, like what's what else is there out there to do? And in many cases it's just there's you know, it's, it's the, the boredom. Like if you're bored in a place where that's not, not offering you a lot, you know, drugs offer offer you a little excitement, a little drama.
0: There is a sort of idea that like white working class conservatives have a certain moral taint to them, like they're they're too racist, they're too bigoted. I feel like explanations for their behavior and their voting patterns sort of stops there. I mean, is that an example of the lack of context in talking about this stuff?
1: If you're talking about kind of white working class Trump voters, is that is that a question? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a touchy subject, but I think you you know there there's a trend on the left to basically say, um, you know, look at the white the problems in the white working class and just simply say, ha ha, you got what you deserve. You, you know, you, you 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 vote for these pro you vote for these things and uh oh now you're having problems. I think that's just I think that's just wrong to do that to any group to kind of mock any group or to or dismiss any group, even if it's a group that doesn't vote the way you want them to vote. I think. You have to look again at a sheerly pragmatic level if your job is to win elections and remember we're in a democracy so everybody votes counts at a very even if it's not driven by empathy by being a, you know, trying to be a decent person if it's just driven simply by 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 the crude pragmatic um, calculations of politics you want to know how these people come to the decisions they come to <laughs> I mean if your goal is to try to to beat them so uh, I've never understood kind of the Notion of dismissing any group of people or or why they behave the way they behave or not looking at the con- the fuller context the way they behave You know, I think and, I, and I'm very very careful about i want to choose my words carefully here because it's such a t- touchy subject, but I I think you need to give people who find themselves being drawn into 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 into, into identity politics white identity politics into into punching down into um, into into the awful racism that we, we see coming up, you want to give some ask yourself why are they going there, like is it is it a lack of other alternatives, and that doesn't that doesn't mean I want to dismiss the awfulness of, of of that behavior, but you can you can ask simply is there a way we can kind of combat it, other than just yelling no no no, um, you know is there alternatives, is there an alternative community to provide people that makes the appeal of white in any politics lessen. Did you get the sense, like,
0: when you were talking, when you were in sort of poor white communities, I think what always maybe short circuits my own empathy a little bit, to be honest, is people who rely on Medicaid and food stamps voting for a party that's sort of to its core opposed to the provision of those sorts of social, social services. Do people in your i mean not to oversimplify or overgeneralize but do people not realize that or do they not care because there's other values issues that that matter more to them
1: i think it's the second one also i would just say just so I, I don't want people to think this book is about voters i think i think i think it's fair to say you can tell me if it's wrong that 80% of the people in the book didn't vote for trump <laughs> um and over half of about half the book is set in minority communities so i don't want to, to um but but to to the, the i think there's two things going on one is a lot of people don't pay attention to when they vote. I think there's this, especially us in the commun- us and then what I call the front row, the educated elite, the kind of punditry class. I liken us to basically, I've um, I in politics to the kind of the NFL, um, how how people follow the NFL. We're kind of we're kind of like we're kind of like the people in the Jets Bills um, parking lot on Sunday game, right? <laughs> we're all in on like you know we're we're jumping on tables, we're fighting each other. I think most people look at politics the way a lot of people look at the NFL they watch it once a year maybe four or five hours um so there's a you know there's a lot of there's a lot less kind of thought that goes into voting than a lot of people think it's more kind of a uh kind of a an emotional feel like hey you know um this guy gets me or this guy or this uh, this this woman gets me um uh, they they kind of seem like they get what I my one of the things I say about politicians generally go into these in these poor neighborhoods, black and white, um, and generally say your um, your job is obsolete, your lifestyle is icky. Now move oh and vote for me, <laughs> you know um, that's not really going to get someone's vote when you say that, and the Republicans when they go into these neighborhoods when the, to the white neighborhoods. They leave out the your lifestyle is icky part, and it's it's a it's a scam because I think they I think the elite Republicans have no more care for the white working class than the um, Democratic uh, candidates, but you know at least they don't signal that they find this 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 lifestyle icky, and so it's kind of like and the other thing about voting is remember you got three choices you can vote for A B or you cannot vote at all, so we haven't given you know, I think a lot of um. A lot of people exercise three, which is not vote at all.
0: Yeah. After Trump was elected, the I remember the Times sent a correspondent into the the poorest African American part of Milwaukee and the, the extent to which we had all just missed the boat and assumed people would, you know, understand how evil Trump was and how racist was. But you simply I mean, this reporter did what you did. She talked to people and they were like, I don't I don't see what's in it for me. I don't see why Hillary will help me out. So they just stayed home. And it's um it's depressing that we missed that possibility.
1: Yeah, you know, a good portion of my book, uh, one chapter, is actually set in that exact neighborhood. And I was there I was there prior to the election. I saw the same thing that that reporter saw. And to be honest, I didn't mention it because I didn't think anybody would believe me. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, but, you know, I always say that the frustration of the working class um, is generally um, <clears throat> white working class and black working class are frustrated how that frustration gets rendered as the function of race. Um, the, the Blacks, um, Black working class can't vote for Trump because Trump attacks them and is, is racist. Trump punches down, so they, they choose not to vote. You know, um, They can render their frustration through um, just opting out and a lot do that. Um, and the white working class has the ability to, the unfortunate ability to punch down and many of them exercise that.
0: I just want to zoom in a little. There were two moments in the book that that really stuck with me. Um, the first one was this war over an ice machine in McDonald's. Could you just talk about that for a minute?
1: Yeah, that was Bakersfield. I, um, um, there's, I guess part a lot of the chapter of the drugs is set in this one McDonald's in Bakersfield, which was kind of um, a... Sorry, of, which Bakersfield is this? Uh, Bakersfield, California. Bakersfield, California, um, which is statistically not that i get into statistics much probably the most it has the least number of college graduates of any major city this one mcdonald's like a lot of mcdonald's do, do kind of serves as a, a homeless nest or a kind of a homeless a kind of a, a place for the homeless and the and the, and those on the on the outer margins to kind of like spend their time and in and, and i was there in july i think or june and it was 108 109 outside 110 <laughs> and there was this community in the neighborhood of, of addicts and homeless who um, who would just use the McDonald's as a kind of way station. And everybody had different – and then there was this ice machine. And I, I don't know if you've people know a lot about the McDonald's, but a lot of them have basically the, 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 the wall of sodas and ice that are free. Um, or not free, but you can get refills as long as you have a cup. And so the ice and the drinks were, were a big boon this particular day because it was so hot. So people had all sorts of scams of coming in to basically get free, free, free ice and free, free pepsi's and free cokes and free sodas, and it, it had gotten so bad over the years, I suppose, that they had this little cutoff valve in the back that the owner could, the manager could switch on or off, and it was this game being played for the, like the entire three days I was sitting in the McDonald's of, of these people trying to get their free drinks or their ice. Versus the, this one particular manager, uh, the afternoon shift manager, I believe it was, who was just intent on not letting anybody steal from his McDonald's, and it was just this wonderful, you know, I don't want to laugh about it because it sounds, it was just this wonderful, the creativity that people would come up with to kind of game the poor manager, you know, like uh, one of my favorites, is, like the guys who always come in and they just, I've seen this in a lot of other McDonald's, they go and they 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 grab a, um, a paper and a. And a, and a Discarded cup out of the trash can, and then just sit in the corner pretending like they're. One guy even had fake reading glasses on, and he would just <laughs> pretend to read the newspaper that he grabbed from the. And then he would, you know, take his his soda glass if he would find someone who would throw one away, and then he'd very opportunistically, when the machine was turned on, when it when a, a paying family would come in, would go up there and get as much ice and coke as he can. And then there was the people who were just who just didn't care about trying to care. Like the one guy, I think I don't know if I mentioned him in the book, who came in like cut off shorts with like nothing else on and he must have got this container from from a work site it, 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 i don't know if you see now the, the like in the in the truck stops these you know, seven of these massive containers that look like they're about buckets <laughs> and you know it was like the, larger than my head and um and it had kind of i think it had like a steel bottom on it and he just walked right in and just started filling it up with ice and coke and the ice would slam against the bottom and this you know and the, the manager was just too busy with other things and he was it just it, the noise of the ice just reverberated through the whole mcdonald's he just kind of sat there not caring one bit And the manager started yelling at him but he couldn't turn it off because other people were trying like real families were trying to use it <laughs> It was just, uh, it was, it, you know, I hate to laugh about it, but it was just this absurd scene.
0: No, it feels like some kind of, like, really grim metaphor for where America is at now. Like, people coming up with crazy schemes in the hopes of of ganking 10 cents worth of soda or 15 cents worth of ice. It was just sort of too perfect.
1: On a day that was 108, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was it was, it was was 106 by the time, like, 9 in the morning rolled around. So I, I, I was stunned that these guys... These guys and girls, man, women, could, could, would panhandle out in the sun. I mean, it was just so, it was so searingly hot. Um, and they would come in and steal ice and coke from McDonald's. <laughs> the, uh, the
0: other moment in the book where I was like, this is, how can this even be real? Was the brickyard in, um, I think it was Selma, right?
1: Yeah. Selma is, um, I, I try to use it as a metaphor for how little we've succeeded in terms of extinguishing racism, you know, people people celebrate Selma for these great—and they were victories. I don't want to diminish the victories that were, were won in Selma, but the reality of what Selma is now is very different from that. And um, there's just not a lot of work there, you know. And uh, so people were scavenging these bricks made from a, a brickyard, from, a, from warehouses that were being torn down. And as someone pointed out, the bricks were made by slaves— <laughs> <laughs> probably and these people were cleaning for i think twenty dollars or ten dollars a day to stack them and it's just it was just an awful metaphor for kind of and then the the bricks were then being sold online you know this the only the only white person i saw was the guy who came in and the person who was buying the bricks to sell them for high-end restaurants you know that want a sense of looking old you could buy these bricks i forgot the price you could buy them for to you know, to refurbish like these upscale eateries and upscale bakeries and um, and and kind of towns that were not Selma, so yeah, I, I thought I thought it, it uh, it's a pretty strong metaphor for for so much.
0: So so the in other words, the life cycle of one of these bricks is potentially created by slaves or or low wage black workers created before the Civil War, right? And then so discarded, they're in like a a brickyard. It was,
1: they were made, made to build warehouses, I think cotton warehouses, that were being distingu- um, dismembered, or whatever you call it, taken apart. And I guess I was there in 2015, 2016.
0: Yeah, and then, and then they end up in a fancy gas <laughs> pub that that the workers could obviously never afford to eat at.
1: Exactly. This,
0: this idea that everyone is sort of like a freely choosing rational actor. And like, if there's no jobs where you live, but there's jobs 200 miles away, you can just pick up and move there. I I take it, (laughs) the sense I got from your book is you do not like that idea and you think we should put it to bed.
1: Yeah. Um, I write a whole chapter, I guess on called, this is my home. I believe I call it. Um, yeah, that, you know, one of the things I try to talk about in the book is what I call non non non-credential forms of meaning. Like, I think the broader theme I try to I try to write about is at a more philosophical level is that kind of we, the elites, kind of only really value one form of meaning, which is the economic. And that's generally correlated with how much education you have. How much education you have means how much money you make. And so all these other forms of meaning, so faith, um, place and race are not really allowed to kind of. You know those are those are those are those are things that you inherit without having to do anything you're just born in a place um and those mean a lot to people and they should mean a lot to people because you don't have to do anything to get them and you, you don't there's you, you don't need any credentials to be a member of plattsburgh or to be um you know uh, uh to live in the adirondacks if your family was there for a few few generations um and so this idea that people just, just you know, we should all be economic migrants in our country, I think is really offensive and, and tells us about the, how dominant we, how much emphasis we put on the economic and, 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 and the, um, the business, you know, how much we let businesses decide how our, cult, how our society is shaped. that this, this notion that somehow just being always willing to move and being a- always able to move, it's positive. I mean, there's just some people who, like, one of the things I also talk about is how part of the reason we do this is because we we can't really quantify the value of these other things. You, how, I mean, how, how valuable is faith? How valuable is family? How valuable is, you know, living all your life in one place and, and having connections and community? We, we we just can't put any kind of dollar value on that, so we just say it's useless. But I think it's very valuable. I mean, it's it's, it's all some people have. And to get at a much more pragmatic level, when you tell someone to move, especially in a dying town, you're asking them to give up their one asset they own and sell it into a falling market. <laughs> you know, and that's also just, it's just the reality of how moving is much different. And I say the other issue I think is is it it underestimates how important family is to some people. You know, one of the one of the people I I mentioned in the book I'll never forget is a younger woman who I met in the McDonald's in East L.A., in a largely Mexican-American neighborhood, who, and, and she, I met many many like her, um, kind of young kids who, young adults, who couldn't go away to go to a better college because they, they have to stay for their family. You know, in her case, she was gonna go to the East L.A. Community College because she was her mom's translator her mom was first-generation Mexican-American and hadn't learned English. And she, as a as the oldest daughter, was bilingual. And so she, her mom needed her, and her family needed her. So she was going to stay. And I think there are so many instances I've met of kids and young adults who have to stay or want to stay because of family, because what family provides for them or what they provide for their family. So I think in many ways, you know, this kind of, simple just move is uh it doesn't understand the realities of 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 a lot of the working class and what and what they value and um and 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 what their their daily life is like
0: i've been on a kick lately about the in, to my mind very overgeneralized, essentializing way we talk about race and i thought a good example of that was the somali community in uh lewiston maine and and their their sense of race and divisions within sort of the black community of America. Can you just, just talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, one of the things, and I, 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 I'm, I'm loath to talk about it too much because I don't want to emphasize it too much, but because um, I think it, there's so much more going on in Lewiston with the Somali community. But one of the things I, that, that shocked me was how many of them openly, just every one of them said to me bluntly, Somalis were not originally um, located or settled in Lewiston. They did a secondary migration. They were, they've come from Minneapolis and Atlanta, um, to Lewiston. Uh, I believe it was only one original Togalee family was settled there in '93 or '94, and subsequently it's become a, a, a strong community of Somalis. But the Somalis moved from other places. And when I asked them why they moved, there are very many of this. M- the answers were all variations of well this is a white town and you know that means better education that means safer or we had a bad experience and in in the black community where we were where we were were put so you know i think you know one of them said it i I forget the exact quote And said to to the phrase was we unfortunately have the same sense that um it's better to be in a white town than to be in a black town so they had moved to lewiston partially because they were drawn by the safety of the town and what they perceive to be um, a safer town and what they perceive to be a, a better educational system, that that tells you a lot about what Black Americans face in their communities. That the, that the 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 the, inf- the the structures are so bad there that the Somalis want out. The, the yeah, new, the the new the new the new immigrants want out because they want something quote better. I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth or, put, or speak for a community that's not mine. So I'm, you know, I'm, I don't want to overgeneralize too much.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I found that part depressing as hell. But as you as you alluded to, I mean, there is a a bright side of that story, which is the smaller community there really did um, basically revitalize this more or less shuttered downtown area, right?
1: Yeah, and you know, I, I try not to I try not to yell in my book. I let, I hope people get the message that's there from the words. But it's you know, I think the Somali community has done wonderful things in Lewiston, and I think Lewiston is is much better for having had the Somalis come. You know, uh, I think um, you know, I think there, a few of the they fa- they face a lot they face a lot of problems there. They face a lot of racism, a lot of um, xenophobia. Um, but you know, they've basically revitalized downtown that had been empty for a long time. It's it's really I think it's I think it's it's working out. I. I'm sure I'll get some pushback by people in Lewiston saying it wasn't a fair portrayal, or, or, what have you. But um, I think it's um, you know, that a lot of both both the Somali community and the white community, both when, when th- you know, they're they the fallback when I when, when when after like hearing about an ugly story was always about the soccer team that things are better now that the the local high school soccer team, which 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 is actually pictured in the book, composed mostly of. Somali Somali kids um, won the state championship and brought pride to to Lewiston. I think that was this really wonderful moment that kind of bonded the town a little bit and helped pave over some of the problems they've had. I I
0: do feel like, especially compared to certain parts of Europe, like obviously we don't integrate immigrants perfectly, and there's obviously a lot of bigotry and xenophobia. But it does seem like that that basic ideal of an America people can come to, and within a generation or two, they're just full blown Americans. I mean, it, it seems like that's still happening and still working at least to a certain approximation, right?
1: Definitely. I, I Look, part of this project was done under the guise of, um, I don't think it made it into the book, but like, you know, the, the, the sense of the American dream, talking about the American dream. And I think really the only people who are realizing, the only community right now that is really feeling like the American dream is working for them or, are fully on board with the concept of the American Dream are, are recent immigrants. I, I wrote primarily, I wrote only, I believe, about Somali immigrants in my book, um, and and a few Mexican Americans. But I spent I've spent a lot of time among Mexican Americans, uh, especially in El Paso and East LA and and Reno and and Houston. And um, I think there if there's any any community now that's really feeling. That, you know, the American dream is working for them to, to the more than any other community, it's recent immigrants. Um, and I think the Somalis would generally say the American dream is working for them. Although I'm not so sure about the other community of Somalis I was with, which was in Nebraska, that that seemed to be less hopeful than what was going on in Lewiston.
0: You, um, I'm curious about the process of taking presumably thousands of photos and then Narrowing them down to maybe a, a few dozen in the book. When it when it came to photos of people rather than streetscapes, w- was there anything in particular you look for? Or is it too much of an artistic, intuitive process to even describe it in words?
1: Well, it, it's it's so impossible to describe in words. That I let somebody else do it for me. I let the art editor of the of of sent of the of the publisher handle the book. I I, I handed him a um a disk with seventy four thousand pictures on it. <laughs> oh my god. And he spent a year going through them and he narrowed it down to this and I had veto power. Um, but honestly I couldn't have done it. I, I'm too personally close to the pictures. Um, like I know too, I, I, I don't see them anymore. If that's under, if, you, if that makes sense, I've looked at them so many times, um, that, uh, that the art editor, the publisher basically spent nine months going through 74,000 pictures. I had helped a little bit by turning, like putting them within kind of like themes but, um, he narrowed them down and, um, I vetoed, I vetoed a lot because there are some people I just didn't feel like would benefit from having that picture out there or would, uh, I don't even benefit I think it would be unfair for them to have that picture out there. Even, even though everybody agreed to be photographed, everybody knew what was going to happen with the photograph. I still think there are some cases where it just doesn't make sense to put that photograph out there, especially when I write about them. So, um, I vetoed a lot of pictures, but otherwise the art editor did it. And I I was, I was impressed with, I mean, there are some pictures I would not have chosen and I think that's a good thing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, 74,000 pictures is almost impossible to choose like 40 from, man. (laughs) Are
0: you, um, obviously when you were sort of traveling around, you couldn't integrate yourself into communities the way you could in, um, in the Bronx, but are you still in touch with a lot of the folks you met on the road?
1: Unfortunately, not as much as I would hope, because quite honestly, um, their life are pretty transient. But one of the things I found really fascinating is the U.S. is finite, which is something that doesn't seem that when you're driving across it. But by the 20th time you've driven across it, like the last trip I went on, I was in El Paso, and there was this guy who I took his picture. He, he did, he's not in the book, and the picture's not in the book, but it's one of my favorite pictures an older man. I think He's 85. And I spent an afternoon with him in El Paso like four years ago or so. And I came back like six months ago and there he was. He was still there. (laughs) And I, you know, I gave him his picture and um, he's going through dementia. So he didn't really remember me, but I thought that was really cool that I could find him. Similarly with McDonald's. um, I'm like, oh, this is this is exit blank in Ohio. That's, that's where Steve is, you know, and there he is. (laughs) There's Steve two years later sitting at the same table you know, so one of the things I'm going to do when I have the time after the after the book launch is to um, kind of drive across the country and give copies of the, of the book to people I had promised to give copies to who, you know, I met four years ago or three years ago. The best way I'm going to find them is simply to simply just show up at the McDonald's or, or under the bridge where I originally found them and, and kind of do some detective work and try to track them down. For instance, like the cover, the cover photo, we had to get a release for that because it because it's for marketing purposes um i had to go back to to um to west virginia to find them and it took three four days to find them um but i found the i found the couple i had taken their pictures like two and a half years before um but i found them uh, after three days um and got them to sign you know releases and uh and then paid them for the pictures
0: what um what left you feeling hopeful or at all optimistic about about all this stuff?
1: Um, I, there's two answers. One is um, absolutely everybody, no matter everybody treated me decently. I mean, I, I can't, you know, when when you're on the road that much, and you're an outsider. You know, I mean, I I can't tell you the number of times I was the only white person in a community or, or or a building or or a hotel. Um or a neighborhood and, and how decently everybody treated me or how I was clearly an outsider when I walked into a church, um, you know, kind of in scraggly long hair and, um, clearly this was a community church like you know, where everybody knew everybody. Here's this outsider who just walks in with a camera and nobody ever, you know, everybody was nice to me. Everybody was, everybody told me their story, which is pretty, which is a pretty personal thing to do. Um, so at an individual level, I think people are very decent. I'm not saying we we are collectively, but at an individual level, I think if you if you kind of approach people with the right attitude and um, tell them, you know, that you generally you truly are are there to listen and and, and value their opinion, they'll open up and treat you decent. I mean, like the number of people who helped me when my car broke down, people who had no right to help me, you know. <laughs> um, it's just that's hopeful. Um, the second one is. Um, is immigrants, um, you know, the, the the communities like the Somali community, um, like um, like the Mexican American communities in El Paso or or East L.A., who are um, who are reminders who might remind, who who I think often reminded me that things are working out. You know, I mean, like there, a lot of what we take for granted, a lot of people would love to have. And, um, and, and they're a reminder that people, you know, we don't have it that bad.
0: So the, um, the book comes out, I think June 4th, where else can people go online if they want to learn more about your work or, or yeah, all, all your photography and writing?
1: Yeah. Um, the, I, I have, I have a Flickr account where I, where I originally started and where I post pictures. Other than that, that's about it. Um, but, um, you know, I, you can look at a lot of the pictures on Flickr, um, Uh, especially of the, of the, of the, of the more of the addiction stuff. Um, And um, um, I'm on Twitter. I'm I'm trying not to be too, too, too on Twitter these days. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Twitter is a good thing, Um, but it's uh, not, it's not at all. And, um, and I I think our marketplace for ideas is broken. And I think Twitter is a sign of that. Um, But um, I, I try to kind of do my best to maintain a positive attitude on Twitter Um, which is hard.
0: Uh, well, look, thank you. Thank you very much for, this was really generous of you to take the time to talk to me. And this is, um, it's a really important book. So I hope it, it sells many copies and, uh, yeah, let's, let's do this again sometime. I I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for taking the time to read it. I mean, I always am amazed that someone's willing to read something that long. (laughs) So thank you for taking the time to read it and, um, and, and take care.
0: Walks for bed To the babies going already on dope Straight to his veins From the Coast Guard boat Baby daddies It ain't too late You can't participate Baby mamas I know what you're going through So sorry
1: to disappoint you Get children You the spark You the energy You the heart To the grandmas You the glue Cause you know things fall apart To the PPs To POWs To MIAs To the ARs To the HKs To the M1s To the AKs To the comrades On the grind Let me see who comes to mind To my click. Yeah, I can't.